about like find me, find Katie, find Nicole, find Molly. We'd love to get to honestly connect with you. It's a big piece of what we love to get to do. We know that different ones of you are coming into different places tonight, really familiar with Christianity, the way of Jesus, the Bible, or maybe this is like the first time you've ever dabbled in any of this at all. And we're glad that all of you are here. We wanna help you just take whatever your next step is in loving and following Jesus. So please, like don't hesitate. Please come talk to me, talk to our team. We'd love to get to know you. There's gonna be plenty of time to do that during Nugget Night too, y'all, so it's gonna be sweet. I'm really excited for that. And they're on the way right now. It's awesome. I just got the final confirmation. Good news. Um, you got a Bible, Luke 7 tonight, like uh, like Merritt just said. But before we get into that, it is Black History Month, so we have been taking some time at the beginning of our gatherings to remember the stories of black men and women who loved and followed Jesus, whose stories really are, are rarely, if ever, uh, told. Tonight, I just want to tell you very briefly the story of a woman named Ruby P. Clark. So Ruby P. Clark in the early 1960s was living her life. She was working in her city. She was a part of a multi-ethnic church, just loving Jesus, loving people. And as she spent daily time in prayer uh, with Jesus, daily time in the, the Word of God, she began to sense that God was inviting her to move her life overseas and live as a part of a missionary team. And that would mean that the entirety of her life had to change, like, radically. Where she lived, what she did, how she worked, all of those things would change for her to go and help plant churches overseas. And Miss Clark chose obedience to this call, trusting that if God would call her to it, that he would lead her through it. So she applied to the United World Missions and became the first African-American missionary in the history of that organization. She ended up moving to Mali and reached Muslim women with the gospel for eight years with great success and then moved to Senegal. In her recounting of the time spent in both of those teams, she recalled that the Muslim and Senegalese, that the Mali, sorry, and Senegalese women accepted me for what I was, a missionary of Jesus Christ. Years later, upon her return stateside, she said this. This is a great quote. She said, it's my burden to see my community and our churches get fired up. Her words, in the mid-60s, great, um, to, for career missionary service. And she spent her life laboring to that end. I want to, I love this story. I want to point out, like, how undertold her story is, though. If you were to search Ruby P. Clark, you would find a page in a magazine from the year 2000, and a, a tiny picture of her and about a quarter of a page of, of, of the page in that magazine. Her story led to no books, it led to no speaking tours, it led to no national platform. Missionary Ruby P. Clark simply sensed God calling her, had no promise of success, did not do it for platform or for performance or for prestige at all, but she could look back at the cross and she's quoted as saying, if the Father sent Christ to me, then who would he send me to bring Christ to? She went and she returned. She could have heard the call, resisted it, and lived out her life as she knew it. Instead, she said yes to God. She understood that she'd been forgiven much and that she had a responsibility in her own mind to bring that same message of forgiveness to others. And while she might not be a household name in many churches, she has a name that is known in heaven. There are women in Senegal and Mali who would never have heard the name of Jesus if Ruby P. Clark hadn't said, Sydney, I'll go. I want to be more like I want us to be more like her. So to that end, let's pray. Um, Jesus, as we open your word, we come to it expectant, hopeful that you will meet us here. We know that you're incredibly good and gifted at that. We, we love you very much, Jesus. We have a, at least a desire this evening to see who you are. I pray that you would raise up more in this room like Ruby P. Clark. 
Father, more men, more women who would hear and who would go. God, who would have that same idea that they've been forgiven of much, so they need to go and bring that message of forgiveness that, Father, if you would send Christ for us, then who would we go to and bring Christ to as well? If the gospel came to us on its way to someone else. So, God, would you help me as I teach this evening? Would you help us to hear? Would you help us to enjoy and to know you? It's in your name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 7. Let's get into it. Um, this is a really incredible story in the Gospel of Luke. It's, it's actually unique to the Gospel of Luke, and it helps us answer this one question. If you're taking notes, this is for you, top of the page. Here's the question this text answers. How will God treat me when I'm at my lowest? How will God treat me when I'm at my lowest? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, in our first gathering at the Great Hall, I shared a little bit of, of my own story, how when I was 17 years old, my life was going on a particular trajectory that was fairly destructive. Uh, I ended up catching a case with the state of Florida uh, for destruction of property. Oops. Um, and uh, I was convicted. I had to go through that entire process. And as a result, because I was 17, my parents grounded me. They grounded me for a week, which is wild, by the way. That's just like... It was too short. Um, and so I'm in my, yeah, right now, like, I was, I was too short. Um, so I, I, was, I was in my room, and I had this moment when I was like, I, um, the trajectory of my life is going in a destructive path. This is clearly not good. I didn't have the words for it, but what I needed in, in my head, I was like, I need someone to help me. I need someone to save me from this path of sin that I'm on that's clearly leading to destruction presently in, in my life. Like, that was just what, what was happening. And so I, I pulled the Bible out of my closet. Literally, y'all, like, this is not like the preacher hyperbolic thing. Like, I literally pushed dust off my Bible. Like, it was like no joke. Like, I just hadn't read that John in, like, so, so long. Like, I just, I just hadn't. Like, I hadn't. It had been, like, since I was a child. So, push the dust off, open it up, start to read it, no clue what's going on. Whatsoever. I don't know if you've ever done that. Maybe some of y'all just have always known your Bible. Good for you. I didn't. 17 years old, I'm reading the text, and I'm like, I have no idea what's happening right now. Like, I, I just didn't understand it at that point because I was so new to it. Didn't know it was a story of God that led us to Jesus. Had no language for that, no understanding of that. But I did remember from when I was a child that, like, I'm pretty sure I could pray. And that, in my mind, was not so much talking with God, but talking at God. So I was thinking, okay, well, I'll, I'll maybe have something to say. So I, like, moved my little rug onto, like, this thing. I move my little rug onto like the, the, the right in front of my, my, my window and I get on it so my knees don't hurt and I and I like and I and then I pop back up and I open the window because I'm like I think I get like better reception or something like if we, and so and so I start to pray and I pray something along these lines. I, I pray something something like this. I, I remember praying, God take me back. God help me. Now I've shared that story with some of you over cups of coffee. I've shared that story uh, from here before. Here's what I've never said publicly about that moment. I didn't know if he would. When I prayed that prayer, I hoped that he'd help me. But I didn't know what he was, I didn't know if he would. I, I, I didn't know anything about the Bible or about God, so I didn't know how he was going to treat me in this low moment. Like, would he make me earn my way back to him? Would he let me come to him? Would he reject me and push me away? Did he even care at all? I, I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know my Bible. I didn't know God. I didn't know any of these things. I didn't have any of this language, any of this culture. 
What I did know was that I was at my lowest moment. And I wish there had been someone that had opened a Bible with me and read this story from Luke chapter 7 with me and this moment. I wish someone had helped me see this moment from the life of Jesus to answer that question. How is God going to treat me in my lowest moment? You see, in Luke chapter 7, we have an encounter between Jesus and a woman that is, in a sense, actually a continuation from the stories we've looked at so far. Now, if you're new, don't worry about it. But if you've been around for the last couple weeks, we've been going through this series called Unexpected Conversations with Jesus. And we've seen in Luke chapter 5, two really unexpected moments where Jesus has interacted with somebody. And the first time we saw him in Luke chapter 5 interact with a man who had leprosy. He had a skin condition that separated him from the people. Uh, we talked all about that. And then and he heals that man. He touches that man. He heals, He saves that man. He forgives that man. And he sends that man back into the community. It's an incredible, beautiful story. And then the second story that we saw was Jesus and Levi, the tax collector, the most hated man in the city because of his job. Jesus walks up to him and he says, you follow me. It's incredible moments, incredible stories in, in, in the middle of, of all of these. Um, people start to see it and they and they start to, to have these thoughts. But there's there's this, this this one thing that's been really consistent between both of those that I wonder if you noticed. What is something that came up in both of those stories? Both of those stories. There's a crowd around Jesus. Now that's interesting. From Luke 5 to Luke 7, there's actually nine different instances where there's a crowd in this region that Jesus is traveling through that follows him and that grows. Crowds made up of individuals. Those individuals watching Jesus touch and speak and save and heal and call people to follow. Uh, crowds full of people that are, that are starting to think, hey, if Jesus can heal and can save that person with leprosy, I wonder if he can heal and save me. He crowds full of people who are saying things like, if, if Levi, the tax collector, can, can follow Jesus, I wonder if I could follow Jesus. Those are the questions in the crowd, but we're, we're left with bigger questions as readers and observers from our position here. What will people in the crowd actually do once they've seen and heard from Jesus? What will they do with what they've seen and heard from Jesus? In Luke chapter 7, we actually meet a woman who universally scholars are convinced was in those crowds. This woman saw what Jesus did. She heard Jesus teach, and, and she was a member of those crowds. This is not the first time that she has been around Jesus. Now, from this story, we don't actually know what her name is, but we do know her title. She's called the sinner. And we don't know what her sin was, but it was public enough and well enough known that everybody knew her by that title and by her sin. It was not a one-time thing in one place. This was a part of her life. Oftentimes, uh, titles like the blank were used for people to describe their profession, like Simon, and this is Simon the Pharisee. This woman is the woman, the sinner. So this could, most likely, people would say, does have to do with what she did for a living. Some speculate that due to the culture of the day that offered little protection and dignity for women, that she was likely a prostitute. We don't we don't know, but what we do know is that this woman lived a life wherein she felt absolutely trapped. Her reputation and profession was known as she walked up, and it was whispered about when she walked away. Because she could have left, she would have left it if she could, but what else could she do? It was how she was known. It was all she'd ever known. It was all life had ever been, could ever be. But then one day, she sees Jesus 
And a crowd comes up, and he's in the middle of that crowd. Maybe she's in the back, not wanting to be seen, but curious to see and hear for herself who this Jesus is that she's heard rumors about in town. Seems like the most religious people hate him almost as much as they hate her. So she peers through the bodies in front of her, and she listens and sees Jesus heal and save and touch and forgive and call people to follow her that is unexpected. And she eventually receives the invitation of everything that Jesus has culminated in, either implicitly or explicitly in his ways, words, and works, where Jesus is presenting, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior, I'm the one you've been waiting for. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to me, and I'll give you forgiveness. Come to me and you can be saved. Come to me and follow me. And at some point, this woman does. Look at this the last verse, chapter 7, verse 50. You've got a Bible in front of you. It uses a past tense verb to outline Jesus describing something of her that has already occurred. At some point, she has trusted in Jesus and her faith in Jesus has saved her. It already happens, led to her salvation. Make no mistake, this woman that we are introduced to, who is known in the city as a sinner, is actually a new disciple of Jesus Christ. She's become a follower of Jesus, trusting him as Savior and Lord. One individual trusting Jesus after all she's seen and heard in the crowd. A new follower of Jesus. And what we see in the story is her just trying to say thank you to Jesus for all that he's done for her. For We've come across a predicament. How could she get to Jesus? How could she approach him? She knows how she's known in that city. How could she get to Jesus? She's seen how other people have approached him. She's seen what he's done for them, but how could he do that for her? She's trusted in him and she's thankful, but admittedly, she's a little nervous. She doesn't know what Jesus is gonna do if she comes to her and to him in her lowest moment with her profession, her title of sinner, her reputation, she trusts him, but it's a young trust. She has faith in him, and that's enough, but it's a young faith. She wants to say thank you. She's not quite sure how. Then one night, word spreads around town that Jesus has accepted an invitation from Simon the Pharisee. This is not Simon the Father of Jesus. This is not any of this. Is Simon was a common name. That's why this, this um, title is given Simon the Pharisee. So she decides, you kind of can see this happening. Okay, this is my chance. I know where Jesus is going to be, so I'll bring my gift to Jesus. It's customary for the time and culturally appropriate. I'm going to go up to him. Can you just imagine, like, what am I going to say to Jesus? Okay, uh, I'm going to roll up on him, and I'm going to say, um, thank you for saving me. I am following you now. Here's... The perfume, like, 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 can you just like, like, imagine, like, like, she, she's relearning how to live because of what Jesus done. She's just trying to say thank you for what you've done. She's trying to find the right moment, the right way to do it. So she, she goes to the house and she stands where she always has at the back of the crowd as this dinner is occurring in the house of Simon the Pharisee. You see, dinners were like entertainment of the evening. If you can believe it, if you could. No Apple TV, right? No Netflix in the first century near Middle East, okay? No HBO Mac, no nothing. Like, no scrolling, right? No catching the throwaway Thursday night football game. They're terrible. Why are they always terrible? Um, sorry. <laughs> it was this. Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus over for dinner. That was the entertainment for the evening in the city. So the guests 
that Simon invited would recline at the table. The table's low on the ground. Uh, the, the table's low on the ground. The, um, the, the, the people that are eating are leaning on their left arm, eating with their right arm, and their feet are kind of like reclined behind them. You can think they're like laying out almost and enjoying this, this meal together. And while they reclined at the table, it was culturally acceptable for people to just come in from the town and just watch them and listen to them, to be around the room that they were in, or to look in from the window, or to look in from the, the opening in the, in the home so that, that they could enjoy the entertainment, so they could glean, so they could listen, so that they could learn about the conversation at the table. So they, they all come, everybody comes, the guests start to come, and this woman comes. I'll just catch Jesus on the way out. I can't walk up to him in the middle of dinner. That'd be weird. I'm not gonna roll up on him when he's gonna get there. Not sure when he's gonna get there. Not really like clocks and like, Apple Watches, again, first century near Middle East, like where are we getting there? Evening. When's the evening? Evening, right? Um, like I have my gift, I'll say my thank you, and then I'll just roll back into the crowd and continue to follow. So she stands outside of the house and watches, perhaps waiting for the dinner to end, and she notices something. She notices that the guests all come and they're all welcomed in the proper cultural manner for the time, but Jesus isn't. Jesus, everyone else, every other guest walks in and they're assigned somebody who washes their feet, right? Like they're walking around dirty, dusty roads, open-toed sandals or no shoes, animal feces on the ground. Their feet are gnarly. So when they come into the house to this honored event, someone's there that literally washes their feet. Every guest that's coming in, someone's washing their feet. Someone's washing their feet. Jesus walks in. Hey, Jesus, you sit over there. Uh, every guest that walks in, Simon greets and kisses them on the forehead, a sign of honor and respect in that time, a cultural moment. And Jesus walks in, Jesus, you sit over there. Every person that walks in has a little bit of olive oil dabbed on their forehead and on their head to, to bring relief because the sun is so hot, it's beating down on their skin the entirety of the day. So to bring relief from the sun, smoothness to their skin, and a pleasant aroma as they walk through the house, it's clear that these are honored guests. Everybody's given a dab of olive oil, dab of olive oil, dab of olive oil. Jesus walks in, Jesus, you sit over there. She is noticing that Jesus is not being treated even as well as the guests that are coming in for this party. Have you ever had someone that you loved treated with intense disrespect? There was a um, moment uh, a couple months ago where my wife and I were driving back, I think we were driving back from Chicago for like a flight we took in or something, and um, there was this guy, oh man, I'm gonna get, okay. There was this guy in an SUV that um, my wife's taking the left on a green, and he shoots out the cross in a red light, swerves in, almost hits the side of our car, and looks over at me, flips me the bird, starts yelling at me from inside his car after he cut us off. And like starts like yelling, like I can hear him say like bad things about my wife. Like not with the mouth, and, and I, and I, and I, um, had like the, the weak excuse that went through my mind is like, yo, I'm safe but not soft. Like I want to fight this man. Like I'm, I'm, I'm actually, like I know it's funny, but I'm actually not kidding. I'm like confessing sin right now. I was so furious and so angry. Like I was vibrating mad. And Molly, in her wisdom, drove away. Um, <laughs> right? There's a lot more to that story. I had to repent to her. I had to repent. Significantly, I'm 
still mad thinking about it right now. It was this blend of intense emotion when someone you love is dishonored. Your affection mixes with your anger because anger is what you feel when you're not ready to deal with the sadness of what you're seeing. And it led to this powerful response. And that's actually what this woman is experiencing right here. She looks at Jesus in his intense dishonor that he's experiencing. And she has this intense affection for Jesus and who he is and what he's done and what he means to her. And this intense sadness of the way he's being poorly treated and publicly shamed by the host of this party. Don't mistake this. Jesus is being mocked publicly by this man. And so this woman begins to weep. And this isn't like cute little rom-com tears. Like This is like the Greek word for this is used for torrential rain. She, the, the, you could read it. She is raining from her eyes. It is intense emotion as the person that she loves is being disrespected, disregarded, and dishonored. And at this moment, she starts to look around. Because certainly she's not the only person that realizes this, right? The disciples are going to do something. She's looking at them through her tears. They're not doing nothing. The crowd's going to do something, right? She's looking at them through her tears. They're not doing nothing. And so she comes to this moment where it's very clear. Now, this is how I'm going to say thank you to Jesus. If no one's going to honor him, then I'll do it. If no one's going to worship him, then I'll do it. If no one's going to treat Jesus the way that he deserves to be treated because of who he is and what he's done, then I'll do it. So she walks into the house. And when they see her walk in, perhaps a few people glance over, very confused. But they continue their conversation. They're all reclined forward. So she then gets behind Jesus and approaches his feet. You can hear people start to get a little quieter, a little quieter. These feet were dirty and she directs her face over his feet and drenches his feet with her tears and then lets her hair down. But an act of absolutely intense intimacy and begins to wash the feet of Jesus with her, with her hair, which culturally was her, her glory, her beauty. She takes her beauty and says, I will take everything that is beautiful about me that's left that's beautiful about me and I will worship you. With it. She kisses his feet because she doesn't see him herself as worthy to kiss her head. I need you to understand the room at this point is silent. The servants are still, the audience watching is hushed. The table is not talking. And Jesus just looks as she brings him the most intimate gift that she possibly can offer. And she brings this jar with perfume. She breaks the alabaster jar open. It would have cost a year's salary just for the jar, not even for the ointment inside it. And she breaks it and immediately the sweet smell fills the room. The olive oil on the other guests is overpowered instantly as the aroma from this perfume emanates from the feet of Jesus. This smell would stick on Jesus for days after this encounter, a reminder of her continued thanks and gratitude for who he is and for what he's done. He's marked by this perfume as she finishes this act of thankfulness to Jesus for who he is and what he's done. All right, let's be clear about what's happening here. All of this is her way of culturally coming to Jesus and saying, thank you. Jesus does not demand this of her. She's not doing this to earn anything from Jesus. This was her way of saying, I recognize what you have done for me. This is my worship. This is my way of saying, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. She's not earning anything. Jesus isn't forcing her to do it. She's just responding to who he is. And you've got to understand, Simon hates it. He hates this. 
She's brought her passion for Jesus, but Simon has brought his pride. Look at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus knew who this was. If he really was a prophet, he wouldn't let her near him. Simon is answering, by the way, what he believes the answer to our questions. What he believes God does when we come to him in our lowest moment. It's what I was afraid of in that room. It's what this woman was afraid of maybe in this moment. It's what you, if you're honest, are afraid of right now. That in our lowest moment, when we come to Jesus for help, we're afraid that he'll push us away, just like Simon wants her to be pushed away. This is how Simon feels about God. It's also how Simon feels about the woman. If God wouldn't let her be near him, then neither will I. This is like, you ever get like a song stuck in your head? Like the whopper, 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 right? Yeah, sorry, rest of the night, guys. Um, it's just, you get the soundtrack stuck in your head and it's like, I don't know how to like not see things through that lens anymore. Uh, Simon has this soundtrack playing in his head of a dysfunctional view of God. If I come to him and I am a sinner, he will push me away. His wrong view of God, this bad soundtrack, this dysfunctional view of God leads to a wrong view of people. See, this woman has been welcomed and forgiven by Jesus. And in recognition to what Jesus has done for her, she's worshiping. And to worship, she don't need to write song, although we love good songs. She don't need a catchy tune. She don't need good vocalist, but we love good vocalists. She don't need lights. She don't need whatever. All she needed was a good memory. I remember and recognize what Jesus has done for me. He saved me from my sin. He's forgiven me of my sin. So I'm going to worship him even if no one else will. She doesn't have to make that defense for herself, though. In fact, this woman doesn't need to say a word. Jesus steps in and does it for her. Look at verse 40. Jesus answering Simon said to him, Simon, I got something to say to you. I love Jesus. Okay. Um, he answered, say it, teacher. I don't know why I said it like that. He's probably going to say it like that. Um, a certain money lender had two debtors, Jesus said. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Jesus does what Jesus does when he's trying to teach someone who doesn't want to listen. <laughs> he tells a story. Now, the term here that would make no sense to us today is what's called a denarii. Essentially, it's what you would make for one day of work in a common profession at this time. So it reads like... Uh, 500 days of work against 50 days of work, or like a two-year paycheck against a two-month paycheck. Both are significant sums. Both can ruin your life if you can't pay them. One is demonstrably more. And the debt collector cancels both. Then Jesus asked the question, picking up at verse 42, now which of these two, two years, two months, will love him more? And Simon says, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. I'm going to just be honest. Sometimes we got to do this when we read the Bible. This is a ridiculous response from Simon. Like, this is like the wackest thing I've seen someone say when they respond to Jesus. Like, you suppose. Imagine you have $100,000 in student loan debt. And then someone else has $10,000 in student loan debt. Now, you both have debt, interest is racking up, and then you get a letter from someone saying, I paid your debt. Which of the two you think is going to love that person more? 
I suppose. There's no I suppose, there's no supposition. The person who understands and recognizes how much they've been forgiven of is going to love their forgiver more. Jesus is being clear. If you understand that you've been forgiven of much, you will love the person who forgave you much in response. And if you think you've only been forgiven of a little, you'll only love that person who forgave you a little in response. But there's a slight theological problem when we run into this story. I wonder if you saw it. If we don't understand what Jesus is trying to communicate, you could read the story and think, oh, so one person needed to be forgiven of much, and the other person needed to be forgiven of little. Now, to be clear, that's actually not what Jesus is getting at. And the problem with that reading is the Bible, okay? It's going to be on the screen. Isaiah 59 says... Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. All right, so let's deal with this. It seems like sin is sin, and that sin creates separation between us and God, but the wages of sin, the payment necessary for sin is death. Now, in a horizontal sense, the consequences of sin may, may vary. Like, if I lie to you and I kill you, those are different outcomes, right? But in a vertical sense, sin is sin. All sin is equal. All sin separates me from God. Whatever I might categorize as big or small, all sin has and requires equal payment and equal wage, death. Sin creates a separation between God and I that ultimately culminates if no one steps in, if Jesus doesn't step in, if I don't come to him in eternal death. So what is Jesus saying here? It's in understanding this that we see the subversive brilliance of the words of Jesus. The tax creditor in this story, check it, forgives both of them. Both have debt. Both are forgiven. In fact, the text says that they were graciously forgiven, right? The free gift of God from Jesus Christ. So it's the free gift of forgiveness offered to both of these individuals. But the central aspect of this story, don't miss this, is how each person responds in relation to the forgiveness that they've received. I'll say it again. The central aspect of the story is how each person responds in relation to the forgiveness they've received. Their response is based on how they recognize what's been done for them by Jesus and how they see themselves and how they see their sin. That difference in this story is intended to highlight the difference between Simon and the woman. Look at verse 44. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, this, this, don't miss this, he turns towards the woman to acknowledge her while he's talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I entered into your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I've come in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment, with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus looks at Simon and says, the problem that you have, Simon, is that you think that your sin is little in comparison to hers. 
Because instead of looking at me, you're looking at her. Instead of holding a mirror up to your face to see your sin, you're taking out a magnifying glass so that you can see her sin. You're trying to judge yourself against her when you actually need to be looking up at me. You think your sin is little, so whatever forgiveness you ask for, it's perfunctory. You treat me casual. It's disregarded. It's small to you because you think, Simon, you're so big. Your love for God and for others is little, but this woman, she knows her sin. She knows that I've forgiven her. She knows that it created separation between us, that it deserved death. She knows that, and she knows I've forgiven her of it. I've taken that separation away, and in place of death, I've given her life. She recognizes I have greatly and graciously forgiven her, so she loves me much. Simon, you're worried about what she's done for me, but you should be more concerned that it didn't cross your mind to do it at all. Simon, you're worried about her, but you weren't there when she realized who I am and that she could be saved. You're fixated on the person that raises their hands in worship, but you weren't there when they were forgiven. You're wondering why that person sings out of tune and so loud behind you, but you weren't there when he realized what Jesus did for them. You wonder why that person seems to talk about Jesus all the time and structure their life around following Jesus, but you weren't there when Jesus set them free for the very last time to say no to that thing that they thought they would never be free from. Simon brings his pride. He looks down on everyone around him. He's the theological snob who thinks God will push him away if he's not performing perfectly. So he pushes away other people so they don't get their sin on him. The woman brings her praise. She says, it doesn't matter who's around me. It doesn't matter what they say. I just got to get with Jesus. I got to be with Jesus. I got to sing to Jesus. I got to live for Jesus. I just got to love Jesus. I recognize what he's done for me. So my response is natural. I'm just going to worship him with my words, works, and my ways for the rest of my life as best as I know how. She doesn't see a crowd, y'all. She don't see Simon. She just sees Jesus. She just sees him. Here's what we see from this story. This will be up on the screen. How you respond to Jesus reveals if you have recognized who he is and what he's done. How you respond to Jesus reveals if you've recognized who he is and what he's done. If you love little, if you look at Jesus and think casual, plaything, idea to be debated, you might not know who he is and what he's done. I use Jesus so I can feel like I'm better than other people. You might not know who Jesus is and what he's done. Jesus is a means to an end in my life. You might not know who he is and what he's done. You look at your sin and you think it's not that big a deal. You might not know who he is and what he's done. If you think you were already a pretty good person and Jesus is a nice little cherry on top of your life, that you've been forgiven of little, you might not know who he is and what he's done. You might be much closer to Simon than this woman. But if you love much, if you look at Jesus and recognize what you've been forgiven of, as you recognize more and more of the gracious forgiveness of Jesus towards you, what he did on the cross and through the empty tomb, your natural response over time will be worship. I'm not just talking singing with your mouth. I'm talking singing with your life about who Jesus is and what he's done. And you do it not to initiate, not to prove, not to perform, not to earn, just in response to who Christ is. This is the life of the Christian. To recognize and remember over and over what Jesus has done for you and to respond with your life and to follow your Savior. Even when you sin, even when you fail, this isn't a call for perfection, it's an invitation to worship. 
Simon draws dividing lines that separate people into groups so he can decide who can and can't come to God. His question is, have you sinned? And if so, if it's in one of the too far, too much categories, then you can't come to God. In your lowest moment for Simon, God rejects. Jesus tears down those lines that divide them. He is fully aware that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why he came. The words of Simon are stay away, but the words of Jesus are come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. His question is different. It's not have you sinned. He already knows the answer to that. His question is have you recognized that I graciously forgive all who come to me? So you put down the magnifying glass, you pick up the mirror, and you recognize what's been done for you by Jesus, and you worship him. When I'm at my lowest, Jesus doesn't say, stay away. He says, come to me. I'll give you rest. Come to me. I'll give you rest from your sin. Come to me. I'll give you rest from the world. Come to me. I will graciously forgive you. And so Jesus ends his story by doing just that, by reminding this woman of what's already true of her. He looks at her, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, we might read that like real quick and look at it as something to move past, but I just want to pull something out that is not obvious in the English. The tense here used in the Greek is one that we don't really have an equivalent to in English. Molly, you can come on up. I'm, I'm closing down here. Jesus uses what is called the perfect passive tense. It's to say that it is tritensal, covering the past and the present and the future. It's as if Jesus is saying in this word, your sins are forgiven. He's actually saying, per this tense, hey, your sins have been forgiven, what you've done, are being forgiven, and will be forgiven into the future. It is the perfect tense that reveals his perfect forgiveness. Jesus is reminding her of what is true of her. So in case this interaction messed with her, Jesus is saying, hey, just remember, your sins are forgiven. Hey, after I leave, if Simon messes with you again, remember these words, your sins are forgiven. Hey, if you go back into that old life, so you fall off for a moment, and then you wake up and you realize, i got to come back to Jesus, just remember, uh, your, your sins are forgiven. Just in case, just in case, just in case, hey, just remember these words, you are forgiven, you've been forgiven, you will be forgiven. It's a perfect tense for this perfect forgiveness. And people hear that at the table, and they say, don't miss this, they say, who is this? I want to like sanctified imagination moment. I want to imagine that, that this woman, when she hears these people at the table saying, who is this? That she turns around and says, who is this? <laughs> can, I, can I tell you who this is? This is Jesus who I've believed in and I've repented of my sin and he's called me forgiven. This is Jesus, the savior of the world, she'd say. This is Jesus the one we've been waiting for. This is Jesus, the one who will die for our sin. This is Jesus. I poured my perfume out for him, but he's poured my, his life out for me. This is Jesus, the one who will rise again so we might have life. This is Jesus, the one who graciously forgives. This is Jesus, the one who welcomes sinners and doesn't push them away. This is Jesus, patient and kind with us as we grow and mature in our faith. This is Jesus, and when they called me a sinner, he called me forgiven. This is Jesus, and when they said, keep your distance from her, he said, 
daughter. This is Jesus. And when they called me by my sin, he called me by my name. This is Jesus. And when I was in my lowest place, he didn't push me away. He said, come. He said, rest. He said, forgiven. He said, grace. He said, save. This is Jesus. And when I was in my lowest place, he let me worship him. This is Jesus. He calls me forgiven and saved. Who is this? She'd say. This is Jesus. And all that he's done for me, he can do for you if you trust in his Lord and his Savior. My sin, she'd say, deserves separation and death. What I did deserves separation and death. But instead, he was separated in my place on the cross. Instead, he would die that death in my place on the cross. And he would rise again so that I would know that my end is not separation but relationship with God. He, he would rise again so that I would know that what waits for me is not eternal death but eternal life. Who is this man, she'd say? She'd say, this man is Jesus. And in this unexpected moment, he's everything I've ever had. And he's everything you have. Would you pray with me? Just to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment of concentration to put yourselves in the position again this evening of being in the crowd. In the same way we looked at the crowds before and wondered what will they do with what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done with what they've seen and heard. And in the same way you have the same question this evening, Saul Company. What will you do with what you have seen with what you have heard from Jesus. Perhaps some of you need to consider this question. Have you been graciously forgiven? Have you put your trust in Jesus? Have you trusted that God saved sinners, that he sent his one and only son to live the perfect life that you and I could never live, and to get on the cross and die the death for our sin that we deserve, that he goes down into the grave He takes the separation of sin for sinners so that we who are sinners might never know that separation if we put our trust in him. But he doesn't just die, he rises again to new life so that he has victory over sin, death, and the grave. And so when he says, come, and you will find eternal life in me, he's not kidding. When he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, he's not playing. When he says, you are forgiven, who, who come to me, who Believe with your mouth and confess in your heart that he is Lord and Savior. You'll be forgiven. Have you come to Jesus? Have you trusted in him to be gracious and forgiven? Maybe for some of you, do you see your sin like Simon sees his sin? That your sin is little, small, and inconsequential, and therefore you see Jesus as little, small, and inconsequential. Jesus to help you see, truly see what he has done for you this evening, just right there in your chair, just to ask again, Jesus, help me to understand. Don't give me a casual response. Don't let me treat you like a plaything. Don't let me treat you like your light work or small. God, you are so, so much more. Jesus, you're so much more. Help me to see what you've done for me. Some of you, do you see Jesus like this woman did? life with God. All she needed to worship 
was a good memory. So my invitation to you tonight would be just to remember, to remember what he's done for you, to remember his gracious forgiveness, and to respond with thankfulness and prayer. In a few moments to respond in worship by singing. And then for the rest of this week, the rest of this month, the rest of this year, the rest of your life, to respond with obedience and ever-growing trust in him. So however you need to respond, there's space right here for you to do it. You need to pray, you need to ask, you repent, whatever it could be. Take some time to do that.